I am not going to be nearly as entertaining as Becky. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, hold on. All right. I can see my paper, but I can't see you, and that's actually helpful for me, so. Well, you, I see you. You just look really young and blurry. And... <laughs> oh, well, good morning, church family. That's really nice to mostly sort of see all of you. Um, today is a big day because we are on the last verses of the Mark series. There's not, I don't know, is it an hallelujah or is it a time to cry? I don't know. It's been a great year, more than a year. Um, but I don't want you to be too sad because next week we're actually going to do a wrap-up. We won't be covering any more verses because we'll have covered them all, but the teachers will be up here. And we want your questions, your comments, what did you learn? You're going to hear from some of the teachers how this series went impactful for them, what they learned, how it changed their perspective, how the diamond turned as they got to know Jesus through Mark's eyes. Anyway, so that's what we want next week. And in a super amazing coincidence, uh, the liminal birthday happens next week also. So we're going to celebrate the end of the Mark series and liminal's birthday with the perfect combo snack, treat, ice cream sandwiches. Woo! Okay, so another reason to come next Sunday. All right. After the message, this is just giving you a heads up of how the rest of the morning is going to go. After the message, we're going to take communion, and our practice is to celebrate communion on the second and last Sunday of the month here at Liminal. And at uh, Liminal, all are invited, all are welcome to participate. Okay, I'm taking a deep breath because I'm going to be starting Mark. I don't want to say, I actually am one of the, I don't want to say goodbye to the Mark series, but the end is the end. Um, and so in, when I do read, when we together we see these last verses of Mark, you're going to realize if you're following along in your Bible or if you happen to have memorized the last chapter of Mark, that I'm not actually going to read to the very end of chapter 16. You're going to notice that I've left off the last 16 verses. No, I'm sorry, the last 12 verses. And why have I done that? Because nearly everyone agrees that those last 12 verses were not written by Mark and were added later. And scholars have come to that conclusion several different ways. First of all, I'm sure you know that the New Testament was not put together by original documents, like we have Mark's uh, gospel, or we have Peter's letters, or Paul's letters. It's composed of copies that were made of those original documents. And those handwritten copies were assembled into the New Testament as we know it over a, a, a period of time between 135 A.D. and 1200 A.D. And there are about 5,000 of these copies, but many of them are just mere fragments the size of a postage stamp. Others are complete manuscripts, but most are somewhere in between. The oldest copies of Mark's gospel that exist do not have verses 9 through 20 of chapter 16. And early church leaders in the first and the early second 
in the first century and the early second century. They, we have lots of their writings. Early church, church leaders wrote letters and sermons and uh, doctrinal things, teachings, so much stuff about the Bible. And these early letters from the early church show no knowledge of verses 9 through 20 that we have in Mark's gospel. So that's one way we know that those verses were added later. And the second way scholars have come to this opinion is through internal evidence within the verses, the added verses themselves, by studying the words and the themes contained in those verses. And in those last 12 verses, there are many new words that have never appeared in Mark's gospel up till then, just in those last verses. And there are unique word forms that Mark never used. And the syntax or the word order is different. In addition, some of Mark's favorite go-to words are missing, like then and next and quickly, because that's how Mark moved us through the, his book. And there are some odd things, like Jesus sounds very harsh in those last 12 verses. He's chastising. He's very critical of his disciples. And then there's those famous or infamous verses about the handling of snakes and the drinking of poison, which are, give prominence to signs, and Mark has seriously downplayed signs and wonders in his gospel. All of which to say, those are our clues that those last 12 verses were not the original ending. And I'm going to get back to the original ending later in this message. Now last week, Brian left us with the death of Jesus on the cross, followed by the tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom, and then that amazing claim or confession of the centurion, surely this was the Son of God. And that takes us to today's verses, <clears throat> which should be up there, I hope. Yay! There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they had followed him and given him support. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were there too. Now when evening had already come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a highly regarded member of the council, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. He called the centurion and asked him if he had been dead for some time. When Pilate was informed by the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen cloth and took down the body. He wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone across the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where the body was placed. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought aromatic spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, at sunrise, they went to the tomb. They had been asking each other, who will roll away the stone from us from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled back. Then as they went into the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. 
You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, even Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and you will see him there, just as he told you. Then they went out and ran from the tomb, for terror and bewilderment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It's a very abrupt ending, is it not? Is that the way Mark's gospel ended? Well, here's my plan. I'm going to talk about those verses, and then I'll talk about the ending when I wrap up this message. So you may have noticed, because you've been so attentive over the last year, that this is another Mark and Sandwich. Who can tell us, uh, who wants to tell us, the, uh, what's the purpose of a Mark and Sandwich? It's, there's no grade. It feels like a pop quiz, but it's not. Oh, 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 after a year, come on, you can do it. Introverts, we are a few, okay. Thank you, Aprilin. The point is to draw attention to the middle part of the sandwich, which is, gives meaning or helps us understand what Mark is trying to say. So in this sandwich, what makes up the top piece, the bread on the top? The women. What makes up the middle? Joseph of Arimathea, what he does with Pilate. Okay, let's get, this will be easy now. What makes up the bottom piece of bread? The women again. Okay. Phew. So Mark begins this sandwich by mentioning the women at the foot of the cross. Mary Magdalene is there. Another Mary is there, the mother of James and Joseph. And this could be uh, Jesus' own mother, and uh, she's there, and those are Jesus' brothers. It could be another Mary. Mary was an extremely common name at the time. And then he mentions Salome, and she's the most likely the mother of the two disciples, James and John. Other women are there too, Mark tells us. Women who have followed Jesus since he first left Galilee. Do you remember more than a year ago when Jesus first left Galilee and he goes all over the northern part of Judea? He's in uh, Gentile territory, Samaritan territory. He's just traveling all over. They were with him there. These are unnamed women who have walked the entire journey with Jesus and the male disciples. Women who have been in the background, unmentioned on the pages of Mark's gospel. The women are there during the crucifixion. The men are not. The women are watching from a distance, and they see it all. They see everything, but the men do not. And then Mark introduces us to someone we have not met before. Joseph of Arimathea. He could not be more different from the women. He is very wealthy. He's a prominent and respected member of the Sanhedrin, which is both a religious and political elite class of Jews. Joseph is important enough that he can request a meeting with the Roman governor of the Roman province of Judea. But Mark also tells us that Joseph was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, which may mean that Joseph carried messianic hope. In Luke's gospel, we learn a little bit more about Joseph. We learn that he did not agree to and had not consented to the actions 
of the Sanhedrin in condemning Jesus. And in Matthew and John's gospel, we learn that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus. So this is the Joseph that goes boldly to Pilate, the governor. No matter how prominent Joseph, Joseph was, it took guts to ask the governor for the body of a man who was executed as an enemy of Rome. Joseph's request of Pilate to receive the body and place Jesus in his own family tomb countered both Roman tradition and law and Jewish tradition and law. Because to Rome, Jesus was not an ordinary criminal. He was an insurrectionist, and his crime was political. Roman punishment decreed that rebels hang on the cross until they completely rotted away. The Romans did not take the bodies down. The gruesomeness of crucifixion was to be a deterrent to rebellion. Now, in Jewish tradition, their tradition did not allow people who died a shameful and disgraceful uh, death to be buried in ancestral tombs. So Joseph is out of step with both groups. And this, of course, is another example of Mark's irony, because we would expect, or his original readers and listeners would expect, that a member of the Sanhedrin would follow Jewish law as well as try to curry favor with the Romans. Joseph does neither. Joseph needs to get all this done before sunset because of the Passover and the Sabbath. Because of time constraints, there isn't time to anoint the body with spices. Joseph wraps the body in linen and places it in his family tomb. In Jewish tradition, the body was laid on a shelf or a niche carved into the wall of the cave. And then a giant stone was rolled down a slight incline to seal the tomb. Mark tells us that the women have been watching and following Jesus and his body to see where he now lays. The beginning of chapter 16 takes us back to the women and the concluding portion of the sandwich. The Sabbath is over, and the women have brought spices to anoint the body of Jesus. Again, the male disciples are not with them. They are in hiding. But the women are here. The women, who again are named, are not sure how they can perform this important task because of the stone being there. They're not strong enough to roll the stone back up that slight incline. They get there, and they see that the stone has been rolled away. They enter the tomb and see a young man dressed in a white robe, and they are alarmed. Who are you, they're thinking. Where is Jesus? And this is what they hear. Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look. There is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, even Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. Then they went out and ran from the tomb, for terror and bewilderment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Again, that is where the oldest manuscript of Mark ends. It's very disconcerting, isn't it? Over the years, I've heard several sermons and messages explaining that this ending is deliberate. It's a way of, uh, for Mark's listeners then and for us today to wrestle with 
Who is this Jesus? Who is this man? Is he the son of God? That Mark intended his abrupt ending to require us to come to some conclusion about the resurrection. In fact, over a year ago when we started this series, I accepted that, that view that Mark wrote a doozy of a cliffhanger for the ending of his gospel. But that is probably not the case. There were no dramatic, unresolved endings in the literature of the ancient world. Those types of endings belong to our world, the modern world. Mark's gospel would have had an ending, just not the one that we see in our Bibles that was added later. What happened to that original ending? We don't know. Scrolls are very fragile things. And there are several scenarios. Mishandling, persecution, fire, flood, that might account for why the ending did not su survive intact and the earliest copies do not have the original ending. The ending that we have in our Bibles, and most of your Bibles will have a footnote or a note that says this is, not, this is most likely not Mark's ending. But the original, uh, I'm sorry, the added ending was most likely written 75 to 100 years after Mark wrote his gospel. And so this later ending actually tells us a lot about the, the church at that time. It gives us important information via, again, internal evidence that all four Gospels were known to the church at the time this added ending was created. Because this ending is like a summary of the endings of the other three Gospels. This added ending includes a resurrection appearance by Jesus to Mary Magdalene, who, by the way, appears in all four Gospels as the first person who saw Jesus. It's Mary Magdalene who tells the disciples that Jesus is alive, and they don't believe her. Uh, the, um, the Gospels tell us about the resurrection appearance to the men walking home from Jerusalem. That's again been added to Mark's. And a resurrection appearances uh, of Jesus to all 11 disciples. And so this is evidence that there was a core tradition that the church valued and wanted to pass on, that the resurrection appearances were important. And so they added this core tradition to what they saw as a flawed or missing ending to Mark. And this added ending also reminds us that all of the New Testament is a product of many and varied uh, worshiping communities of faith of Jesus that existed in the second century, some of which may have been influenced by unusual practices such as handling snakes or drinking poison. Or perhaps that's a beautiful metaphorical way of, and creative way of saying the early church was experiencing signs and wonders or that the power of the resurrection uh, unleashed, uh, the resurrection unleashed a power that overcomes death. But for me, this is the takeaway of the added ending. That the church held on to and held firmly to a core tenet of our faith, the resurrection of the incarnate God, and would not allow this to be forgotten or sidelined or overlooked. So what would Mark's original ending have been like? 
Well, we've mentioned a few times in this uh, series that Mark wrote the first gospel and that Matthew and Luke are based heavily on Mark's gospel and that Matthew in particular picks up huge chunks of text verbatim from Mark's gospel. So our commentator and many, many other people, not just our commentator, thinks it's safe to presume that Mark's ending would have been briefer, less descriptive, but a version of the ending that we find in Matthew's gospel. If you were to read Matthew's account of what happened after the women visit the empty tomb, and you leave out the bit about the guards reporting to the chief priests, you are most likely reading something very close to what Mark's original ending contained, which would have included the ironic twist that the first person to visit or to see the resurrected Jesus was an unlikely witness, Mary Magdalene, whose gender made her, in Jewish law, an unreliable witness. And speaking of unlikely, <clears throat> throughout this entire Gospel of Mark, there have been so many unlikely things that have happened. So many ways and so many examples of Jesus interacting with people in unlikely ways. Jesus touching unclean lepers, eating with tax collectors and sinners, inviting a hated collaborator of the Romans to be a disciple, healing a demon-possessed Gentile, allowing himself to be touched by more than one unclean woman, Jesus praising people outside of the covenant for their faith, Jesus challenging people of the covenant for perverting the faith, Jesus interpreting scripture in ways that disrupt the status quo, Jesus warning people to keep silent about healings and who he is, and Jesus deliberately choosing the path of death and dishonor. And there are the unlikely people who are closest to Jesus, his family, his disciples, other followers, and the women. These are very real people. In Mark, we hear that they are often faithful and brave. And these same people are awful fearful and in hiding. Think of Peter who denied Jesus. Or these women at the tomb who are brave enough to follow Jesus all the way to the cross but too confused and frightened initially to announce that Jesus is no longer dead but alive. Maybe we've been able to see ourselves in many of the people that Mark wrote about. We act in good faith and trust sometimes. We act in ironic ignorance sometimes. We fail to act. We act poorly or unwisely at other times just like the people in our verses today and throughout this gospel. Sometimes we're the center of the sandwich, the heart, and sometimes we're the bread. Following Jesus involves so many moving and interconnected steps, many of which we experience over and over again. Our steps of trust and belief and good intentions and faith are often followed by new insights into God, new experiences of God, a closer relationship with God. But just as often, our steps can lead to misunderstanding, confusion, doubt, even major screw-ups. But Mark wants us to know, if we keep following Jesus, what we see as failures 
can also lead to deeper insights and a closer relationship with God. This is what Mark has been showing us in this sandwich about the women followers and Joseph. That being a disciple, or discipleship, that word that makes some of us uncomfortable, requires courage. The kind shown by Joseph, the kind we know that the women and the disciples eventually discovered. And this would have been an especially pertinent message for Mark's original audience, because they faced incredible odds to be faithful followers of Jesus. But what about us today? Is courage something that we need? Do we need to be reminded to be courageous? I think in every age, courage is required by followers of Jesus for a variety of reasons, unique to the culture and the time that they find themselves in. But essentially what courage does is it, with courage, we can dare to hope, we can dare to love, we can dare to hold on to this faith in a world that seems to run so counter to the faith. This original abrupt ending of Mark also does another thing. It invites us to ask different questions as we live in this world. The women were asking each other as they approached the tomb, how are we going to roll away the stone? They saw an obstacle to their faithfulness to Jesus. And maybe like the women, sometimes we're asking the wrong questions. We imagine obstacles or difficulties in following Jesus before we even take a step. So maybe the question we're meant to ask is, what does it mean to follow the resurrected Jesus? How do we live with resurrection? For the women, it started with go and tell. And then for that tiny community of Jesus followers, it actually meant learning how to embody resurrection power or new life in the world they found themselves in. It was the resurrection that gave them the fire, the drive, the courage to speak to and to work for a world that needs the holy, restoring love of God. How do we live with resurrection? Maybe the same way. We must embody new life, resurrection power, a new way, the way of shalom in the world we find ourselves in. We must speak courageously to and work for this world to keep telling the story of the God who is love, to keep emulating the selfless, sacrificial heart of God, to keep entering unfamiliar places and territory to speak to and work for this world that we find ourselves in. I'm going to invite the band up. And we're going to take communion a little bit. Andrew, Victoria, James, be brave. Back me up here. <laughs> At Liminal, uh, the way we take communion, and it's gluten-free rice crackers, non-alcoholic juice, is when the band starts playing at your own time. We're not, we don't dismiss rows. At your own time, walk up the center aisle. There'll be an usher here and here. They'll, you take a cracker, grab a cup, they'll pour. Walk back to your seat. Take communion when you're ready. If you um, are unable to get up, 
Raise your hand and either I or an usher, I'll have to sneak up and grab some stuff, but either I or usher will come to you. There's something else I was gonna say. You're also welcome not to take communion. Um, wait a minute. Oh, the cup. <laughs> Housekeeping. When you're done and church is over, just put, you can put your dirty cup in the kitchen. Um, I saw, read uh, earlier this week in a prayer book a beautiful invitation to communion. So I'm going to say this invitation to you, and then we're going to pray after that, and then you guys will start. And this is your invitation. This is the table, not the church, but of Jesus. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it is Christ who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Let's pray. Jesus, in a moment, you will put your life into our hands, and we put our lives into yours. Take us, renew us, and remake us. What we have been is past. What we shall be through you still awaits us. Lead us on. Take us with you. Amen. Amen.